Well, we are uh, moving into our uh, fourth week of the sermon series that I've called Foundations. Um, what are the, the things that form the base of this church? The things that when I've talked with you all, you say, this is what we're about. And not just you say it, but you say it, and then the next person says it, and then the next person says it. What are the, the repetitive, repeating themes of this place? And this week I wanted to talk about the welcome. Uh, it is very clear that as I've gotten to know this church, people continually share that when they enter this place, they feel welcomed, or they feel accepted, or they, felt, they feel as though this is a place of great community strength, a family of sorts. So people mentioned time and time again in my conversations with this church, this sense of coming into this place and feeling a warmth. And some people mentioned, even bigger than that, the denomination we belong to, the Disciples of Christ. People mentioned them as an inclusive group, a group that believes that our table is is getting larger because of God's grace, that we are expanding who we consider in the kingdom. And so this came up time and time again, the welcome of this place. And I think you could extend that even to say the hospitality, the meals we share together, the fellowship, the time together, the fun that is had in this place. This is a core piece of who First Christian is and has been. But as I have done every week with these sermons, I want to begin with the foundational piece and move, build on it, expand it a little bit. For we, as a church, have to continually be reflecting on who it is we are, but also who it is we are trying to become. Where is it God is pulling us forward? How is God building on what has been here already? And so some of this is just asking the question of how can we be more welcoming? It can be very concrete things. What can we do differently on Sunday morning? How do we connect with people, both inside the church but outside? But when we think of welcoming, we have to, to expand it. We have to be aware of what it is that we are doing and what it, how it is that God has called us to be a people who are welcoming, who are hospitable. For we are called not just to create our own space in this place, to carve out our own little me-shaped hole where we fit. We're not called just to accept grace on our own behalf or to accept Christ's compassion for ourselves. We are called to do more. We are called to share those things. As God has welcomed us, so we welcome others. We are called to take what God has done for us and be that for the world. And so with that in mind, I invite you now to listen to our scripture from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. 
And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country, who, went, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's, father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the dancing and the music. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has gotten him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. May God bless this reading. Well, I wanted to start... Um, with a story that I'm going to call The Prodigal Cat. This is a true story. Yesterday morning, Amanda and I slept in because it was Saturday. And as soon as we woke up, at, at, let's say 10 a.m. or so, our cat went through its morning ritual where it meowed and meowed. And so I went into the cat's room because the cat has a room <laughs> and filled up the cat's bowl. And when I walked back out, Amanda said, did you feed the cat? I said, yeah, she was meowing at me. That's what you do. And Amanda said, I woke up at 5 a.m. and fed her. <laughs> I think the difference between the, the cat and the character in the story is that I don't think the cat feels bad. <laughs> I mean, she did when she didn't get fed later on that day. But Well, we, we approach this really familiar parable, this story that Jesus uh, tells. Uh, and I, I want to begin with one of my New Testament professors, um, Amy Jill Levine, wrote a book a couple years ago on parables, exactly these stories. And I want to read this quote from her book about what parables are. She writes, Religion has been defined as being designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. We do well to think of the parables of Jesus as doing the afflicting. Therefore, if we hear a parable and think... 
I really liked that. Or worse, fail to take any challenge. We're not listening well enough. End quote. The point of the parables is not to tell nice stories that everybody agrees with, but rather to challenge our assumptions about the world, to stretch us a little bit. And so today we hear these, this, this parable comes in a series of three parables that are trying to address the question of what is the kingdom of God like? This is the question that Luke is struggling with, one that maybe we don't struggle with enough. What is, how, what are the rules of the kingdom of God? How does it, how does one get in to the kingdom of God? And so today we have this familiar story. You know, it is sometimes called the prodigal son, uh, which is a a term that is found nowhere in the actual text itself and is a little bit misleading because there are actually three characters in this, not just the prodigal son, but the father and the elder son. And so we know the story of the one son who asked for his inheritance up front so that he may enjoy it now. I've heard the story of young people taking out huge loans early in life so they can do retirement first and work later. I think this is kind of like that. He makes this reckless decision. He goes out and he spends all of his money. And when it is all said and done, he has nothing. He's living with the pigs. And he looks at the food that he's feeding the pigs and he says, man, that looks tasty. There, in the end of the story, he comes back to the father and he receives this very unexpected grace. And there is a good chance that those who heard Jesus tell the story have the same reaction that, that we have. Well, that son should have been more responsible. He shouldn't have gone out and squandered. He probably shouldn't have asked for his inheritance up front. He should have done what you're supposed to do, and he didn't do it. Shouldn't have left in the first place. And so when he comes back to the family farm and says, Father, please give me a job with your slaves, and the father throws the coat on him and kills the fatted calf, we might have a sense of, well, that's not very just. He did not get what was coming to him. And so the parable stretches us. And the reason this parable stretches us is because it is a story about God's grace. A grace which is not based on what you have done, but rather is based on the goodness of God. And so central to this story is the second character, the father. The father who is so excited to get his son back that he is ready to throw a feast. You know, I I would tell you it, it catches me off guard that the father is this excited. But then I imagine that anybody who's ever been a parent understands at least a little bit that if your child who has left home and has squandered an inheritance and has done all sorts of reckless things comes home, you probably don't care at all about what has happened before. You are ready to kill the fatted calf and celebrate. This is the grace of God, the grace of God that the kingdom of God is about. But there is one more character in this story, the one who we are, are, we are negligent to leave out, the elder son who has been there all along, the one who has done the work, who has lived the right life, 
who has been by the Father's side, he is understandably resentful. After all, he has been loyal, and this other brother has done anything but. If you're an older sibling, does this feel familiar? It does, doesn't it? I can feel it. A little tingle right here as I think about my, my younger sibling, who I love. <laughs> I don't think it even matters if your younger sibling has wandered. I really, I frankly think when you're the older sibling, you just assume you had it harder. But this is the kingdom. There are those who have stood loyally next to the Father for all the years, and they have enjoyed what that has meant, that love, that grace, that acceptance, and there are those who have not. And so often we think about the kingdom as this place where you get a reward. The kingdom is the place that we get to after we have done what is right. And so the kingdom is whatever these two brothers negotiate between themselves. But Jesus, he's flipping the whole script The kingdom has nothing at all to do with what the sons have done. It has nothing to do with the loyalty of one and the recklessness of the other. It has everything to do with the free gift of the Father in this story. And so we can see that Jesus is trying to stretch our sense of what the kingdom of God looks like, of who's welcome in the kingdom. He is afflicting our sense of how it works. He's afflicting our sense of what justice even means. The spiritual writer Henry Nouwen wrote an entire book on just this parable, and not even just this parable, on a painting of this parable. And in this book, he goes character by character explaining the significance of these three characters on his own life. And his point, I think, is, works for us too. Each one of these characters represents a place in our own spiritual life. We can identify with each one of these characters depending on where we are and when we are. We can identify with the rebellious son. Even if we ourselves weren't rebellious, none of you ever rebelled, right? We know somebody who did. We know that person we look at and go, well, they should have made better life decisions. There is a sense of unworthiness to him. There is a sense of self-contempt. We or they do not deserve the love that has been promised by God. When we are that character, we, we know that feeling. What I have done is too great a sin to ever be reconciled. We do not deserve the love of the Father. And so for Henry Nouwen, the spiritual task of that person is just simply to believe. To have faith that the love is indeed for you, and it is for you. And then there's the older brother whose jealousy is spilling over. You can feel the resentment building. I've always been responsible. I've always done it the right way. There is this sense that welcoming back the rebellious brother is a mocking of justice that he's not getting what he deserves. And we grow resentful. 
And so what Nawen said is that this brother has to grow in trust. You have to trust that the love of the Father has always been there for you. You have to trust that this in no way affects your stature with God. But for Henry Nouwen, it is this final character who, who is the most important in this story. It is the Father, the one whose grace comes to define the kingdom of God. It is this one who comes to teach us about salvation and the grace of God. And in this character, we have to wrestle with the fact that we can identify as one of the two brothers, right? That feeling of, I don't know if God can love me. That feeling of, I can't believe God loves them. We can identify with those characters. But for now, in the father presents a different challenge. For he says, we are not called just to be the two sons. But rather, we are called in our spiritual journey to be like the father. And so Nowen writes this, I am amazed at how long it has taken me to make the father the center of my attention. It was so easy to identify with the two sons, their outer and inner waywardness is so understandable and so profoundly human that identification happens almost spontaneously as soon as the connections are pointed out. We can identify with the sons, but the end of our spiritual journey is not the accepting of grace for ourselves. It is not coming, simply coming to realize that God's radical grace is for ourselves and for others. The end of the spiritual journey is not the accepting that we are loved regardless of what we have done to earn it or what we have done to lose it. Though those things are true, the end of the spiritual journey leads us to step into the role of the Father. Nowen writes, and this is a long quote, but it's a good one. Perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is, be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. God's compassion is described by Jesus not to simply show me how willing God is to feel for me, or to forgive me my sins and offer me new life and happiness, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing to me. If the only meaning of the story were that people sin but God forgives, I could easily begin to think of my sin as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. There would be no challenge in such an interpretation. I would resign myself to weakness and keep hoping eventually God would close his eyes to them and let me come home, whatever I did. Such sentimental romanticism is not the message of the Gospels. End quote. Be compassionate as your father is compassionate. And so in this story, we recognize that as a church, we preach this, this message of Christ. That if you, have, if you have lived the most upright life, God loves you. If you have lived a life of reckless abandon, God loves you. But we preach the continued message that our spiritual goal after, once we have accepted and embodied that love, is to show compassion as the Father has shown compassion. 
And so when we think about the church and about the message that we preach and the welcome that we try to embody and live out, I imagine that each of us can identify with the sons, that when we come to this church, we can see ourselves in each of these roles. Maybe we haven't been to church in a few Sundays. Maybe we've been every Sunday since 1954. We can see ourselves as the sons. That's not hard. But the call of each of us and of the church is not to stop at our own experience of God. It is not to stop at the receiving of our own grace. But rather we are called to embody the world-changing grace of the Father. We are called to extend an invitation to the world to be part of a different kind of kingdom. One which shatters our sense of justice, of right and wrong, of who's in and who's out. But churches and denominations like ours tend to be bad at this. We often get the grace thing really right. We, as disciples of Christ, are a body that says that our table is getting bigger. We are a people of grace and inclusion, but we keep it really quiet. I've heard it before when people say that the disciples of Christ is the best kept secret. I don't know why we're keeping it a secret. We decide to take a passive role in our welcome, a kind of negative version of grace in which we, we, we make sure we don't put up roadblocks and we don't tell people what they have to believe or what they have to do to, to be here. We welcome all kinds of different perspectives, which is really great. But we so rarely extend the invitation we so rarely say, you are welcome here. Because God's grace is for everyone. And it's, it's kind of a shame. Um, because I don't know if you knew this, but the church has a really bad reputation in the world. People look at Christians as closed-minded, as exclusionary, as a club that people come to belong to. The grace of God... It, becomes this thing that it, it creates insiders and outsiders, those who belong and those who don't. People who are included and people who are excluded. And we know that the disciples of Christ are different. We teach that all are loved by God, worthy of grace and compassion. Our identity statement as a denomination reads like this. We are disciples of Christ, a movement for wholeness in a fragmented world. As part of the one body of Christ, we welcome all to the Lord's table as God has welcomed us. And that statement today, as we read this parable, just seems so resoundingly true. We have been the two sons welcomed to the table. But we are called also to be the Father who shows that grace. That's what our identity is. But because we so often are quiet about it, because we have not stepped into the role of the Father, we so often fail to teach that message to the world. And so we, as a church, as a gathering of the two sons, come together as those who have known God's grace and compassion, the mercy of a, of a God whose love knows no end, 
We are called to step into the role of the one who says to the world, you are welcome here. You, you who have been excluded, who have been outcasts, you who think that you are not worthy of grace, you are worthy of grace, and in this place we teach that. For the greatest task of our spiritual life is to step into the role of the Father and to teach and to invite and to love regardless of who's in front of us. Amen.